North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Kuntz, should you beware the Jabberwocky? <laughs> um, I guess so. I would beware of Lewis Carroll, <laughs> him personally, as it turns out. But uh, Why is that? Because his relationship to young children was at least of questionable innocence, let's say. I don't want to convict the dead of things they can't really be convicted of. But uh, the author of Alice in Wonderland, as well as other things, took some very strange photos of children, let's say, and was not a man maybe entirely to be trusted with children in his own day. was unaware of that. Um, and uh, uh, under the impression that various works he'd done, such as Alice in Wonderland, were a pretty de- decent commentary, biting commentary on society he lived in. But it sounds like you'd have a different view of that. <laughs> yeah, I think that Alice in Wonderland, uh, which most people are probably more familiar with through the Disney film than the book, which is the fate of books when they get filmed and are popular. The the moral there is not as straightforward as as it appears because the idea of things being upside down is not complemented by a world in which anything is right side up, which is a difference from everything we're going to be talking about today where there is, even for the most confused and in most children's literature, historically orphaned child, there is some sense of how things are or ought to be right side up. In Alice in Wonderland, there's just upside down, or there's just inverted, there's just the world down the rabbit hole. So then, uh, what, what good is avoiding the rabbit hole? Uh, The good of avoiding the rabbit hole is that the knowledge of what is down there is not even necessary. It's necessary for the purposes of a plot. That is, some people, I think, get jealous of others because those others have had more exciting lives. That is, those others have had more difficulty, more change. In a pastoral sense, they've simply had more sin in their lives, either of their own and or done to them. 
that is if you are the person in that plot with you know more change more excitement more sin it's not actually as good as it looks it might be more interesting than someone who has led you know seemingly a boring life in a boring place with boring people but we're simply bored by goodness and we're excited by sin that doesn't mean that sin is actually better than goodness and when there is a knowledge of inversion sin excitement whether you think of down the rabbit hole as you know life after dark or life after childhood or life after you know in many interpretations of what lewis carroll was actually talking about uh, life after sexual innocence that doesn't mean that it's good it's different <laughs> but it doesn't mean it's good and it might be more exciting or something, but that doesn't mean it's good. And the question of whether I know, the question is really a question of whether I know what is good, not how much evil have I experienced. Well, that, I mean, as one has only seen Alice in Wonderland, I have not read it. Um, that certainly does seem to be uh, kind of the, the question for Alice is what is good? And she seems utterly lost in in that pursuit. Um, I do have to throw a hat tip here. I, I, I didn't intend for it to connect so directly to Stanley Kubrick so quickly. Um, but going down the rabbit hole <laughs> and going into uh, Eyes Wide Shut sounds like they're not too far removed from each other either. They're not. I think the difference is that Kubrick, as opposed to Carol, and we talked about this you know, last week biographically too, Kubrick in his own life loved Christmas, loved children, you know, loved his family. Alice in Wonderland has no such positive vision. There is no above world. There's no, there's no world with soft Christmas lights and, you know, a loving wife. <laughs> there is just confusion and dismay. And so it's not, it's not like it's unusual to have a book in which there is a confused child all alone. That's, that's like almost every certainly Victorian children's book, either a group of children or a single child confused and alone. Nonetheless, what you do with that and what basis you have for comparing that to anything else, and thus whether you have any hope of finding goodness, that does vary widely from book to book. And one way you can tell there was something off with Lewis Carroll, which isn't his real name, is that there is no world above. There is no world of light or peace or, or happiness. There's, there's just inversion and confusion. Why do the children's stories all start confused and alone? Because there is something in the original sense of the word pathetic, that is, it, it moves you to pathos. It moves you to feeling. There is something pathetic about children who are confused or lost in any sense you know, metaphorical or figure, you know, or literal of confused and lost. And so it engages your attention. So when we begin to get in you know, roughly the 19th century books, because we have increasing amounts of literacy, we get books written for children, which is going to come to be called children's literature. So not just school books or, you know, primers that teach you how to spell but stories for children and, you know, the Victorian art form, the novel directed to children. When you start to get that, how do you get interested in the life of a child? Because most children lead relatively, relatively secure and therefore largely uninteresting. That is, they don't have much of a plot kinds of lives. And so my, my kids noticed this before I did, because we were reading whatever variety of books, whether it, everything from Chronicles of Narnia to anything else, <laughs> they, they said, you know, basically, where are these people's parents? Yeah, right, <laughs> because, right, right. Yeah, because in my children's lives, you know, their mother and father are dominant forces. I mean, we're, we're always there, you know, we're always around. So, so the idea that they're just going to wander around or, or their, you know, their father is in, I think, in Narnia they're evacuated because it's wartime, right? But then in other books, besides uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are, you know, trips that are being taken. And, you know, so some of them can't go to America because dad is on a lecture tour as, a, you know, an indigent European academic in America. So he's going to make some money, but not all the kids can go with uh, mother and father. 
so my kids are confused because, you know, this is not their life. Their life is not wandering around on your own. But I think that it's, it is necessary, not only as a condition of certain kinds of life in, you know, places and times that are higher trust than our own, right? So Victorian England is, which is such a rich source of children's literature down to today, and we'll only talk about one English writer today, but, you know, more kids are wandering around on their own more often. This is common. I mean, even the life that my children lead, where we live and how we live, they are freer than children in many, many places, you know, during the day, because it's kind of a safer place. So there's an element of realism there and just a world that we've forgotten where children are freer to roam and can be and, and probably won't die, right, or get kidnapped. Well, uh, yeah, On the other, yeah, go ahead. I just I've heard stories and I did not grow up experiencing this of kids that were truly free to roam, uh, going yeah. out in the woods and all this kind of stuff. And then you read, what was it, Bridget Terabithia, and you and you believe you're not supposed to go out in the woods anymore. Um, you know? <laughs> so right. I, I don't know. I, yeah. And uh, one other thing I, I definitely have noticed as my kids kind of devour uh, literature of, of usually juvenile stripes, uh, we've pulled back on a lot of it, uh, stuff that we get from the library because of a variety of what I'd call philosophical problems I see with it. There's a lot of Marxism on the one hand. Mm -hmm. But um, one thing that I noticed the most and really disturbed me is the the absentee parent and the absentee father being a primary mm -hmm. theme. Um, the, the kids being abandoned, the kids having the parents taken away, the kids having the parents dead. Uh, it is, it's so consistent. And it, it really began to vex me a little bit. It's like, why do yeah. all the stories have, have dead fathers? It's just a strange thing. Yeah. I, I, I think it is, it is partly a plot device because when, when the family is there, so there are books that I love, series of books that I absolutely love both Little House, which is probably fairly well known, the, the series of Little House books, my favorite is Farmer Boy. But in addition to that, a, uh, a series that is similar, but set in Colorado on a ranch rather than kind of all over uh, the middle of the continent, as in the case of Little House books, which is the Little Britches books. I love both those series of books, but it is it is a very different kind of a literature and it is much less driven by plot and in its way, I mean, it, it, it's sort of more like episodic and everything feels more like a short story because the conflicts are so much smaller if it is a book about children for children, but the parents are there because every conflict is smaller and everything is smaller and everything is less dramatic. And this, the, the things that are most dramatic would be things that are existentially threatening to the family, like wild animals or a failure of harvest or, you know, Indians and some of the little house books, children's literature that, you know, very far back, not just more recent stuff that gets classified as quote young adult, which if you look at reader surveys, young adult YA literature is largely read by women who are in their twenties and thirties. It's, you know, so ostensibly it's for like 12 year olds, but we all know that's not true. It's written and read by women in their 20s, 30s, you know, maybe 40s. But stuff that was aimed in its own time, always read by adults to some degree, but aimed in its own time at, you know, juvenile Victorian children in, you know, England, America, Germany, France. When there is no parent or the parent is not there because the action is taking place in a dream or something, life will simply be far more dramatic and the child will be different different parts of you are engaged in an adventure story than in a story that is really about gradual accumulation of wisdom, which is the story of Little Britches or the story of the Little House books, where gradually you grow with the family. And that, is, I, I mean, I think there's a role for both those things. The things that I've picked out all involve orphans to one degree or another for today, but I think there's a role for both those settings because both of them are previews of certain truths. There will always be environments and groups in which you can gradually accumulate wisdom. And then in everyone's life, whether in childhood or later, there will be environments in which it's an adventure and you just have to sort of survive, right? So I think, I, I think that's also why both, let's say, sort of settings have always been popular too, but for adults and for children. 
Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've been really struggling with this for for some time now, and uh, this last week, and uh, the, the illness I've got this got me brain fogged all all to nothing. Um, hasn't really helped with it. And I've been re- reading Ivanhoe um, while lying in bed, and it's it's been okay. Um, it's got great moments in it. Uh, there's some real real hilarity in it, but it. Yeah. You know, why is the question I keep asking myself as I'm reading it. You know, why a fantasy novel? Why J.R. Tolkien? Um, there's the adventure, there's the survival, there's the need to slay the dragon. But it it, it continues to be something that, um, I don't know, it, it seems like a, a practice in futility to me. Um, but you're, you're going to advocate the opposite of that. You're going to advocate that there is, um, there is value to a, a meaningless story. Ah, I don't want to, I don't want to sound too harsh as I ask the question. Yeah, I think I think that when you're when you're thinking about what get what is what, what gets called literature, you're thinking about something that relative to film, which we've been talking about, is a lot less common and valuable than it was not even a hundred years ago, but maybe 120 years ago, 150 years ago. That is prior to the advent of film, this is as it were pop culture. Mm-hmm. And so you have various kind of levels that that's written at, but then there are things that are now read as quote, like highbrow literature, like Charles Dickens that are utterly popular and normal as normal as knowing about the plots of certain Netflix shows as today would be, you know, following the latest installment of a Dickens novel in a newspaper or periodical. So what you're getting is the stories of, to some extent written in, you know, contemporary times, but largely cultural residue. And that is true as far back as people are telling stories, whether it's Gilgamesh or Homer or something. What is the point of those things? Part of the point of stories is that, like I compared film to travel last time, like travel, it not only engages and opens the mind, right? So I think I think that in, in a reaction against the concept of entertainment, because so many people have wasted so much time being merely entertained, there, is, there can be a reaction against delighting you know, in something, in a story, uh, in the way that something is spun out, in following something that has never been the case. We have always taught each other things and passed on knowledge and passed on remembrance as especially things that are historically based, like we'll talk in a little bit about the Hoosier schoolmaster or Little Britches or Little House. You have knowledge of what pioneer life is like, but you also have vicarious knowledge of life that you don't have to spend all the time living through yourself because you live through it in the space, let's say of five days of 10 years in someone else's life. And that is valuable in the set in, in that it, it changes your life now. And you didn't have to go through facing starvation on the frontier, or you didn't go through trying to survive the voyage back to Ithaca, but you learned a lot as someone else faced starvation on the frontier or voyaged back to Ithaca. So I think that unless you want to banish all poets, you have to recognize, I mean, you know, Plato theoretically banishes all poets and then goes on quoting poetry. So think about that. Yeah, right, but right. but um, if you don't banish all poets, you simply have to recognize that what they're offering is sure it's limited unless it claims to be divinely inspired. But it it offers vicarious wisdom and experience of life. I mean, that this is this is how like when Albert J. Nock, who's in a kind of a contemporary of Edward Eggleston, the writer of the Hoosier Schoolmaster, because it's kind of late, late 19th century, early 20th century America. When Nock is talking about how he received what now gets called a classical education, uh, and it's already going away in his own lifetime, he says, the value here is that you have thousands of years in Greek and Roman civilization and their, their successors of human experience in basically any realm. So you become prematurely, you become, we would say, might wise beyond your years, not because you yourself have personally lived through all of that history of natural science and all of that history of seafaring and all of that history of writing poetry, but you have experienced some or maybe a lot of it, especially through memorization as a classical technique. 
And so you have become a very different person simply by virtue of reading and hearing. And if literature or film or any other medium has value, that is a great part of the value. And I think it also creates in a person, literature does this especially, I know that this has been true in my own life. It creates a, a breadth and a patience with other people because also in your own life, there's kind of a feedback loop here. You read and you experience and you experience and you read. It creates an acceptance that people live vastly different lives from each other. And your knowledge of what is going on in those lives is relatively limited. Guys will often gain this when they leave here at the seminary, they leave here and they begin to be pastors and they begin to visit with people. And they realize that their people have lived lives that are utterly foreign to them, even though they've all been in the same country for each of their entire lives you get some sense of that when you read a book about someone living in a different century in a different country or in a completely different kind of a life in your own century, in your own country. And I think that that is, that is a large part of the value that literature has. So is, is the value of life in part simply to grow? I think that we would have souls that would be preset in the way that machines are if growth were not intended for us. And then those souls, we wouldn't have any knowledge of their growth. They would simply be the way they're supposed to be at some predetermined age, whether that's birth or 12 or 18 or whatever you think, you know, the age needs to be at which, you know, the machine needs to be set forth on its course. And then it runs until it breaks down. But human souls appear to be more like human bodies in that they grow in response to challenge and they grow in response to stimulus. And the more that the mind is stimulated or the body is stimulated, the more that it grows. And so if it is challenged in the same way that, you know, I mean, I think of books this way for, for the mind, but also the spirit. I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about, you know, knowledge. Like I, I know how, you know, they smoked meat in <laughs> little house in the big woods, you know, I'm also talking about, you know, thinking about what it is like to be a little girl and to be afraid that your daddy is never going to come home because a bear ate him that day when he was out hunting and thinking about what it is like to be someone for whom the world grows very, very, very small when there is danger or sickness. If I've never been very sick or I've never been in great physical danger, I don't otherwise have any concept of that, but now I do. And my, my spirit is that much larger and that much more empathetic and that much more understanding of other lives. So I think, yeah, we are intended for growth. Otherwise, our lives would just be shaped very differently. Should you grow out of stories? Uh, historically, people don't. Historically, people have told stories whether we call it folklore or we call it oral literature in cultures that you know don't have writing or don't have writing until relatively recently so there there aren't really human cultures that don't appear to have stories of some kind now that gets divvied up differently it gets called religion it gets called mythology it gets called literature it gets called history but just in you know format stories there are no people without them. And then I think also there are very few human beings who don't at least internally have some sort of story, right? Now, some of them tell those stories or they have stories about other people. So, you know, your family might be a family that tells stories and my family might be a family that doesn't tell stories, right? Or your family might tell stories, but they're kind of sad or bitter stories. Or my family doesn't have many stories, but the stories we tell are always funny stories about when we went camping together or something. But I think it's it would be very strange for there to be a culture or even an individual or a family that didn't have stories. The question is, how many of them are there? What are they about? Who are the characters? And what is the weight that they carry? So my story about, you know, falling backwards into a fire when I went camping when I was 10 years old doesn't have the same weight as the story about the death of Jesus. But those are both 
right, stories right. that I could tell. But both of those yeah. are also stories that are memories of something, something real, as opposed to, again, we're looking then also at the line between that and the story that is more of a metaphor, uh, a, a dream intended to give an idea, but without necessarily having a historic referent. Yeah, it doesn't have to have a historic reference. So all four of the books that I want to talk about today have some some amount of historical setting. Uh, one of them has a great deal of it. And the difference there is that when something claims to have a lot of anchorage to historical settings, I don't look at that as it's trying to tell more of the truth. There's a way in which that is more limiting than something that doesn't have too much anchorage in a historical setting. So think about if in the Gospels, there were immense amounts of detail, such as I personally love, about how they farmed and how they built buildings and what kind of coins they used. <laughs> you know, stuff, I mean, I'm really interested in stuff like that. But think about if God had inspired the writers to write that way. It would be kind of off-putting. And it would be sort of limiting because there would be all of this information that really isn't germane to people's lives outside of the first century in the rural Galilee. And so when you have something that has a really high density of historic reference, I don't see that as actually making, you know, vastly more intense claims on other people. There's a way in which it's, it's actually just a lot more limiting. So the Hoosier schoolmaster has all this information about early America. I mean, kind of uh, early Republican America, pre-Civil War, Indiana specifically. The other two or the other three that we're, we're going to look at today, Krabat and the Sorcerer's Mill, which is set in, you know, maybe 17th century, 18th century, Central Europe. And then John Macefield's uh, pair of novels about an English boy, Kay Harker, uh, The Midnight Folk and The Box of Delights, which is Victorian England. Those last three are much more dreamlike, but they are therefore trying to say things about the nature of evil in the case of Krabat and the Sorcerer's Mill by Otfried Preussler, and both evil, but also goodness and childhood generally. So I think that the less historically specific stories tend to be, usually the bigger their claims are. And I think you notice that if you look at enough mythology, they'll often be very historically indefinite. This happened a long time ago, or this happened at the beginning of time. But they'll also be about kind of stock characters, whether those are gods specifically, or maybe animals in the way that those animals always, you know, this is how a deer is. So here's the deer appearing in this, you know, Algonquin folktale. So I think when things get very historically specific, they can often be kind of like, okay, that's just back there in that time, the less specific, maybe even the more dreamlike they are, the more that it feels okay. Like, yeah, they're talking about something that I have also, or could also experience. So the idea that children are a source of hope, or mm -hmm. are in need of hope, and yeah. that these go together, uh, as opposed to um, uh, what the world tends to do as you grow up, is it steals your hope. Um, yeah, that, right. Talk about that. Yeah, so th this has to do with why is there children's literature? And there are even, especially at Christmas time, there are songs that we sing, either you know inside or outside the church, that are really in, that were at least originally intended just for children, right? So one of my favorite Christmas hymns, once in Royal David City, was intended to be a child's hymn. You know, this is this is for children to sing, maybe in a Sunday school pageant or something. And the point of that, and I think the insight that especially the 19th century has about childhood, and this is why, I mean, I don't, I can't, I can't be too reactionary in the sense that I do believe that as as history progresses you know, goes through as, as time occurs, let's say God is present showing us things that providence still exists, no matter how dark or desperate the times appear. And I think one thing that as, you know, children are laboring in factories in 19th century England, and people are debating, should this even happen? This isn't the kind of labor they did on farms or is that they, they do, they do think very incisively about whether childhood is valuable on its own at all. And when you, you hear the words of once in Royal David City, you're going to hear a description, not just of who Christ is, but also of Christ's childhood. And the idea that our God was himself once a child, that childhood has its own value as such. Now, 
contrary to maybe what we think about Victorians or maybe what we ourselves think about children, that is not located in Once in Royal David City or any of the books we're talking about today in a certain concept of innocence. That is that children don't know anything. I don't really think that's biblical, nor do I, nor do I find it in most children's literature, that children are innocent, not just of adult burdens, sexuality, money, the stuff that adults worry about, but also that they don't know anything. <laughs> I think, in fact, the perception here is that children know far more than we give them credit for. And there is a sense in which they are a model for living because of their capacity for trust, right? That the little child being set in the midst of the disciples in the gospels is there precisely because he is capable of trust that the disciples in their, you know, distraction about who's going to be in charge when Jesus dies and whatever else they're concerned about are incapable and they need to become like little children in order to come into the kingdom of God. So the, the, the insight that I think people have had, and certainly a lot of children's literature has is that children really childhood itself is a time of wonders, not always positive wonders, but wonders and of a capacity for belief in an experience of wonders that is unique. And that, that is a source of hope. Figuratively, we become little children in the way that also literally the birth of children, both in the Bible and in human experience is a source of hope. I mean, every time one of my children is born and I, that has, <laughs> you know, if people know me, that's happened a couple of times, at least every time a child is born, there is something uniquely beautiful about it precisely because, I mean, and this thought has occurred to me many times, just at the moment that the child is born, this child will live to see things of which I have no conception. And I don't mean like new technologies. I mean, like life experiences, joys, sorrows, God's providence, God's favor, Christ's love in ways and times and with people and in places that I will have no conception of. And that is amazing. Yeah. That is an investment in the world's future that I have in seven specific cases that I did not have before any of them was born. It, it is a connection both to the past because the child is given names from the past and reflects elements of, I mean, I, I can see in my children elements of people that were dead before my children were born, but also to the future, as well as the present, obviously, but also to the future that is very profound. I mean, it is a connect, there is a connection to eternity in, in a child of which the child is himself unaware and of which I am only dimly aware. So there, I mean, there is, an, there is a profundity to the existence of children that is very different from the way that I encounter adults, where it's in some professional capacity or this guy's my friend, or I went to school with this woman or whatever. Children are very different than that. They therefore are, they are vulnerable. And this is a dynamic that simultaneously exists, not only in children's literature, but also in our experience. That is children are a source of immense hope and beauty and joy. At the same time, they are the most vulnerable human beings that there could possibly be. That is why any group's treatment of children, whether we talk about everything from the murder of children to simply the, ne the neglect of a child's soul by not teaching him God's word, anything on that spectrum is something to be contemplated with horror because that is such an index of people is how they treat children. Right? I mean, it's, it's like, well, why does the Bible talk about how I know that, you know, in Proverbs, how do I, how do I know that the wicked mistreat animals because animals can't do anything to them, right? Of course, the wicked don't necessarily mistreat the powerful because the powerful could do something to them. So the child who is completely in your physical and emotional and spiritual power, how do you treat him? Do you murder him in the womb? Do you nurture him? Are you, are you afraid of having too many of him because he'll be a quote, a burden, or do you welcome him as a gift from the Lord? All of those are such an index of so much else. I mean, I don't, I don't really need 
I don't really need to know that much else about other people other than how do they relate to children, because that will tell me how they will relate to me, for instance, when I am in need, the way a child is. Yeah, yeah. And for sure, a culture that doesn't want to have any is a culture that doesn't want to exist. It, it can't right. see its exactly. own value. Yeah, um, right. Uh, backing up just a little bit in there yes, um, with the, the wonder that the kids experience. And, you know, I am, I am I'm trying to like diagnose my own, uh, you know, existential uh, crisis right now um, with this, but watching my kids do things, I don't even know how to define that, but they, they do things. They, they find paint or paper or, <laughs> uh, I don't know, a puzzle or just, they're always actively pursuing um, exploration. And yeah. uh, I, I find myself now, I guess, um, jealous confused by it um hungering to recover that somehow the simplicity with which they just decide to draw for the next three hours and they just yeah. do it and um i it, i don't know what what about the modern grown-up um it has taken that away is is that the right place to, to lay the blame is uh you know the modern expectations of say like productivity um and having to use your time efficiently and all this kind of stuff as opposed to simply the child just has an ability to be yeah right and i i think that children in this way are sort of like people that receive diagnoses that they're going to die of a certain kind of cancer in three months Children simply are not laboring under certain illusions that other people have. For example, there is probably somebody who's going to be diagnosed with terminal cancer. He's going to be given four months to live. And that's going to be, that's going to occur two months before the day that I die. And I'm not the guy with cancer. I'm actually going to die before that guy. I may know him whenever the day is that God has appointed for me to die. I may know him. I may know and talk sadly to my wife about how sad it is that this guy is probably going to die within a matter of months. I don't know because I haven't been given the same diagnosis that I'm going to die before that guy. Children don't have the same illusions that adults in the midst of their life do. Some adults, whether because of their advanced age or some amazing portion of wisdom that they've been given or some very definite diagnosis concerning their earthly life, some adults get stripped of those illusions. And that is something actually to be welcome. Not that a cancer diagnosis is wonderful, but it has a marvelous clarifying effect that death always does. Children don't have illusions about, for instance, that money is a thing to be grasped. <laughs> We do. And we're accustomed to doing it and we're always pursuing it and we're busy and all the rest of it. Children live. <laughs> my children live in my house the same way that Jesus teaches me to live in the Bible, which is by the provision of the father. They just live that way. And they'll even say things like this. Sometimes they'll say something like, well, I don't have any money because I'm a kid, <laughs> you know? And the truth is I don't have any money either. You know, it's all, it's all God's. So they, I think they simply have an openness and a simplicity because they haven't had time to develop illusions. I mean, I, one of the things to see here is that, and this is, let me just talk about the Hoosier schoolmaster in this regard, because it's the most realistic. And in some ways it's the least interesting, but I, I want to recommend it to the readers because it's, it has some of the same charms that Huck Finn does, but I, I think in some ways has a more interesting plot, uh, honestly, than Huck Finn, although I love Huck Finn. But uh, in the Hoosier Schoolmaster, there's, there's this character called Little Shockey, who is kind of ancillary to the plot. And then the plot is about sort of the corruption in this small frontier town in Indiana. And the, and the new schoolmaster in town, Ralph Hartsook, discovers that things are messed up and justice is not being done. And, and this all gets rectified by the end. And it's, it's a very heartwarming story. But Little Shockey doesn't really know a whole lot. He's called Shockey because his blonde hair like just sticks up in every direction. And so it looks like a shock of wheat and little Shocky really just has one or two lines, which he's always saying at various depressing points in the plot, you think everything is lost. Little Shocky wonders aloud, has God forgot us? Because little Shocky doesn't understand all the complications. He's too little. He's, he's too young. 
and he doesn't understand, you know, this, this man in the community is in league with this man and they have, they have colluded to make sure that instead of, you know, nurturing the poor of the community in the county poorhouse, the county poorhouse is just making a profit for them. And they're connected to these other crooked people. And that has to do with not allowing the children even to, you know, learn anything in the school and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So Shaki doesn't know any of that. He just thinks of the events in life as whether God has forgotten us or not. So then at the end of the story, when things have been resolved and, 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 it, and it is going to work out, Shaki has this affirmation, which he, you know, says to his mother and his sister and to Ralph, God ain't forgot us. God ain't forgot us. And he's just overjoyed because he thinks of life as an, an outworking of God's provision. I mean, Shaki has a better grasp on Providence than most pastors I talk to. So who are all like, they're depressed and they're miserable and this is bad and that's bad. Shaki is truly just happy to be here and happy that things worked out in some way. God ain't forgot us. So the role of, you know, a character like that is not to say, you know, children, they get it, they get everything. And, but they do get certain things that, that adults have had practice at forgetting. So in the same way that adults are generally and older children are better than younger children at deception because they have more practice, I think also, and you can see this definitely in the Hoosier Schoolmaster, the adults are better at forgetting that God is actually interested in his children and will work things together for good for them right? Hoosier Schoolmaster was a very, you know, popular novel in its time. It's from the 1870s, but it's, it's very theologically informed without honestly being heavy handed at all. And the affirmation is simply that God does provide. So in that then, um, with Shockey's, uh, what, uh, not naive, but his, his clear sightedness, yeah, um, yeah, you know, you right. have a, you have a comment in your notes about, you know, how much do you tell children about the way that it is, or, you know, at what point do these books or novels, are, are they there to help the child grow out of, uh, their, again, their illusions? Right. Because a common, a common theme in children's literature, which is, which is honestly a great deal, much more like the Bible than a lot of novels and films intended for adults is that they really are not, even when they're dealing with very heavy things, they generally are not very explicit. So think about how the Bible uses euphemisms for sexual intercourse generally, right? Or, you know, lay with, uh, new, right? And it's not really clear what's happening. So a kid can hear that and he just understands that these, you know, Amnon and Tamar are angry at each other. He doesn't necessarily know what's happened and he doesn't know biologically what's happening and, and, you know, what is being done to Tamar. He doesn't get all of that, but he's hearing that these people are in conflict in the same way, Hoosier Schoolmaster or another book I, I want to bring up today, which is Kerbat and the Sorcerer's Mill, which is the only book on today's, you know, in today's notes by a Lutheran, Otfried Preussler, who was born in what's now, Czech, you know, the Czech Republic, but was, if you can hear his He's ethnically German. He's Lutheran. He eventually goes to Germany after ethnic Germans are essentially expelled from Slavic countries at the end of the Second World War and then becomes a school teacher. So if you look him up on the internet, you're going to find a lot of elementary schools named after him because hmm. he was he was a he was a principal. He was an elementary school principal and a, and a good one. So they, you know, are memorializing him. But Preussler wrote a bunch of books, most of which actually are in English. Some of them are extremely funny. But Krabat and the Sorcerer's Mill is about a little boy who's an orphan who wanders away from the home into which he's been adopted, partly because the home, it's, it's a Lutheran pastor's home, and his ethnic group is, is also Lutheran, but it, he's not German. So he's adopted into this German home. He has to wear these tight fitting clothes and go to school all the time. And, you know, it's a sort of impulse toward freedom. And he, he is ethnically what's called Wendish or sometimes Sorbian. So if anyone listening to this is Wendish, it's because you're a Lutheran and, and the Wends, a Slavic people became Lutheran at a certain point. And so um, Krabat is himself Wendish and he wants to go where people speak his own language. So he begins to wander around the countryside 
performing usually sort of religious plays. It seems to be 17th or 18th century Europe. It's not really clear for money, sort of like a very small time carnival performer with two other Wendish boys. He wanders off from them in curiosity about this, this mill set back in the woods. And if you were going to put this into sort of a true crime book, you can imagine all kinds of things that would happen to this boy. Now, the book doesn't put it that way. And it's not even portraying, let's say, like childhood sexual abuse, right? And it, and it doesn't have to, because the child doesn't need to understand all the specific details. And guess what? Adults don't even need to understand all the specific details. You can get something as simple as you wander away from the people who are there to protect you and bad things happen to you. You, you honestly don't need to say more than that. It's pretty simple. You can provide more explanation as the person grows up, but you also, children's literature also makes you think, why do I need the amount of graphic detail, either in film or in books or anything else that I am provided in film and true crime podcasts and everything else? Why do I, I mean, what is the point of that stuff? Because in children's literature, I just understand that this is bad. And he goes to this place. And I mean, the liturgical detail, if I can put it that way, in Krabat is wonderful because everything is simply an inversion, a liturgical inversion of Christianity where the sorcerer is concerned. So he has 12 you know, young men that work at the mill and Krabat is initially enticed there because they all speak Wendish. So it feels like he's at home um, and they have a connection to the church here, but it's all inverted. So they keep vigil. And they're miserable and they sit on, you know, the time when Jesus is supposed to have risen from the dead on Easter. They sit at a, a cross somewhere memorializing a man who killed himself. <laughs> they all have to find a place like that. And all their rituals are done rather than with the right hand, as in Christian liturgy, everything is done with the left hand. And the sorcerer doesn't teach them the Bible. He teaches them the book of spells that he has. None of this has to be explicitly turned into, here's this true crime detail about how the crime took place and when. You just know it's bad. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need more than that. The plot is going to progress through the desire not to find out more, you know, prurient detail about misdeeds, but simply through the desire that Krabat has to escape this spell, right? To get away, which first occurs in his dreams, this is why I think imagination is so important. First, he gets a sense in his dreams that he could run away, and then he begins to attempt it in real life. And you're talking about running away from the sorcerer, not from his home. Yeah, running yeah. away from the mill because he's realized that, you know, <laughs> I ran away from something stable because I was dissatisfied, and now I got what I wanted with my dissatisfaction, and what I got, I hate, yeah. and it's evil, and someone always dies on New Year's Eve in this place because there is a man even more wicked than the sorcerer who is really kind of an incarnation of Satan that shows up and demands the products of the mill on certain nights under a full moon, and those turn out to be human beings. Hmm. None of that, none of that is explicitly said in just the way that I just did, which is part of, I think, the mastery of writing both for adults and for children. So say more about imagination then. You said it, imagination mattered because it showed him the way out. Yeah, because imagination, which is what is engaged, I think, not just by, you know, lessons or wisdom, right? Because you could put all of you could put all of the things in either Hoosier Schoolmaster or Krabat and the Sorcerer's Mill or the last pair of books that I want to talk about today by the English poet, but also novelist John Macefield. You could put all of this stuff in proverbial form, right? You could say, you know, even if you're dissatisfied, what you want in your dissatisfaction may not be what you think you're going to get. Or you could say in terms of Hoosier Schoolmaster, People are not who they appear to be, and God will always provide even in secret. Or in terms of the adventures of Kay Harker in The Midnight Folk, and then with largely the same cast, but set specifically at Christmas time in The Box of Delights, you need to uphold your family name. That is a hallmark of both those books. Nonetheless, the story is vivid and memorable and does things 
in people, especially through imagination and the capture of imagination. You could maybe say the engagement of imagination that proverbially stated things don't. So I could say pride goeth before destruction and or I can tell you the story of Solomon's life or the story of Saul's life, right? So I think in the same way that I said that there's a role for you know, a, a children's literature set in a family group versus children's literature where for some reason the child is alone. I think also there is a role both for what you have biblically as proverbial wisdom, as well as for what you might call narrative wisdom or story wisdom, the wisdom derived from how imagination is engaged by story. So like in the midnight folk, there are all sorts of stories and it's a little confusing until you just let the dreams inter interweave themselves with the waking life that Kay leads, because he's going to learn more in dreams that will turn out to prove true in his waking life before the waking life leads him to any clues about the dreams or vice versa. So at first it will appear that daytime and nighttime just totally contrast with each other. They have no relationship to each other. Eventually, he'll learn things at night as he comes to find things out on adventures with the midnight folk, which are both wicked humans, but also just animals, very sympathetic animals, bats, foxes on the prowl, otters that he swims with, bats that he flies with, uh, rooks that he flies with, all kinds of things happening at night. Also cats that he likes to prowl around with at night. And he'll learn things at night that will then show him things during the day. And then what will eventually happen is during the day in the midnight folk, you know, he, he's, he, again, he's another Victorian literature orphan, but his, the pictures on the walls of his home, Seeking's house, which is also the, the major setting for Box of Delights, the pictures themselves will begin to tell him the truth. So there's a point at which about two thirds of the way through the midnight folk, Kay finally, it finally dawns on him that his governess is actually a witch. And he's known that there was a witch named Sylvia Daisy Pouncer. And then he's known that there's a governess. And now he's learning that those are the same person. And part of the way that he learns that is that the portrait on the wall of Grandmama Harker, whom he never met because she died before he was alive. Grandmama Harker, the portrait starts talking to him. This is during the day. So the difference between you know, things that are allowed to happen during daytime and things that happen at nighttime has begun to break down. And Grandmama Harker says, we have always been upright people in Seeking's house. Let there be no Endorings nor Jezebelings in Seeking's house, right? Referring to the witch of Endor and Jezebel, uh, the pagan queen, right? The, the deceitful woman. Let there be no such here. Wipe, get these things out of the house, right? Sweep the wickedness from your house. Get out, get rid of the, the leaven of malice. And those things have come about through reference to Bible stories, which Kay knows. Uh, we actually see him going to church. He's a little bored, but he does go to church <laughs> in, uh, in both books. Um, and church is a really big deal in Box of Delights because it's a Christmas story. But there's a combination of those stories, right, about the witch of Endor, but there's also a combination of how his imagination has been opened up through the nighttime so that now during the daytime, he can see what was always true that he did not before realize. So go on with Box of Delights then. Box of Delights. Um, and this is, we're reading it as we always do around Christmas time. We're reading it now in the family, which is how I have learned to love all four books that I've talked about today. Box of Delights is a similar scene of confusion. There are a lot of overlapping characters, both good and evil, from the Midnight Folk. The difference being that what Kay is coming into a knowledge of is not, as it were, a kind of, in its own way, a sort of a detective story in the Midnight Folk. And Macefield is masterful at showing you things, but not telling you what he's showing you is that when the Box of Delights begins, it appears to be literally a detective story because there's a man whom detectives are chasing on the train that Kay is taking home at Christmas time to get to Seeking's house. Uh, and these detectives are trying to apparently arrest the suspect. But then Kay intuits maybe that none of that is really quite true. So maybe the detective story isn't like really the best way to tell a story. 
instead, what has begun to occur is that the wicked people from the midnight folk are going to take captive all the characters in a melding that is very much like C.S. Lewis, but done in a less, I think, geeky way. (laughs) And what I mean by that is that Lewis is sometimes, if you know enough, you know, combination of legends of Arthur and Bible and classical mythology, it can feel a little heavy handed what he's doing. If you don't know any of that, none of it's heavy handed and it's wonderful and just enjoy it. And he's a great writer, but Macefield, I think, is less heavy-handed and a little more interesting in his melding of sort of a an Anglo-Saxon spirit of Yule and some figures from British folklore, along with the Christian celebration of Christmas and the purpose of the evil of the evil ones who were trying to steal treasure in Midnight Folk is to prevent the celebration of Christmas, especially the one thousandth celebration of Christmas there in Condicote Junction in rural England in the Box of Delights. And so Kay has to make sure that all of that happens and the children who are and and other loved ones who are disappeared, the the phrase that's always used in Box of Delights is scrabbled up (laughs) by bad guys who will sometimes fly in in flying cars and sometimes have airplanes that land in the middle of nowhere and take, take, take them off again. He has to get all of these people unscrabbled and bring them together and get all of the clergy unscrabbled so that there can be a celebration finally of Christmas in Condicote at the end of the book. Along the way, there are all sorts of obstacles. And that I think there is something episodic, usually, even about a tightly organized children's novel as Box of Delights is, partly because I don't think children need the same intensity of plot tension in order to keep their attention that adults do. I think they're a little more patient about flights of fancy and Macefield loves them. So there's all sorts of delights along the way, but the box of delights is a box that is given K by a figure named Cole Hallings, who is a kind of combination of old King Cole, who's a figure from Arthurian folklore, Father Christmas, uh, bringing gifts uh, to English children and a kind of, you know, uh, watchful spirit of Christmas, making sure that it happens. The box of delights is what will allow Kay to have the wisdom to allow the celebration of Christmas to occur. And this is where I think that, you know, I was kind of hemming and hawing about, you know, is, are these, uh, you know, violent, uh, vigilante films from the seventies? Is this, does this have some conservative purpose, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, as I'm, as we were recording that, I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> if you 100% believe what you were saying, uh, Mr. Koontz, you wouldn't have to go back and forth like you are. There is a beautifully, and I don't have to go back and forth about it, a beautifully conservative and traditional conserving purpose to what Kay Harker is doing. That is the child has adventures. The child learns things. He is sometimes in doubt. He is sometimes confused, but ultimately the purpose in both the midnight folk with the honor of his family's name. And then also in the box of delights with, with the celebration of Christmas, both in the cathedral, in the town, and also at seeking's house itself among his own family. The purpose is for Kay to uphold the honor of his family name and continue the traditions of his church. And there is something extremely beautiful about that. And also that the reason that the child is going is growing up and learning and encountering difficulty and overcoming it is so that he can keep going what has been given to him. Right. So I like that there, the conserving purpose and the idea that the light needs to be shined forward. Um, And I think this connects to what you said earlier about belief in providence, uh, knowing that providence is there to be looked for and to be able to see it and call it what it is uh, when it is there. Um, Right. I think that's some of some of what I'm again grappling for here, or or reaching toward, um, because I, I'm, as you talk about, you know, 
you not really believing what you're saying and talking about you know movies from the seventies <laughs> and all this. Stuff. I mean, I, I'm I'm so far off the deep end on this one right now in terms of my search for um, for meaning. Really, um, yeah. You know what? what yeah. Why? Why are we doing this? What is the point of this? Right. And and right. largely with regards to entertainment and uh, you know, aside from life being a matter of survival. Um, it, it just seems to me that entertainment alone, and maybe I'm I'm overreacting from a life of too much of it too, right? But it's just it now seems so meaningless that I I find very little hope in it. And yet the idea that there is something that is true that will vanish if it is not passed forward, and that that's why we are here. I mean, that's that that is yeah. inspiring. Yeah, yeah. And there is a I mean, and and what I meant by not you know quite believing it is like, and I, I and I think we said this like. If you live your whole life and you never see a dirty hairy movie or, or Death Wish, you're probably all right. You're going to be fine. Yeah. You're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, right. But if you don't read, you know, the four books that I'm talking about today, I think your life will be a little poorer for it, probably. Um, and I can recommend them to anyone without reservation because they will they open up both knowledge of you know early America or knowledge of English folklore, which is to a large degree, the basis of our own folklore, um, even as Americans. But they also show you how it is that human spirits and souls are actually enlarged and changed. So Krabat gets a sense of a different world, not only from dreams of escape, simply because of the experience of misery, right? It's also, and these what are usually characters from folklore or dreams or Macefield's way of depicting really the work of angels, very beautiful in the K. Harker books. In Krabat and the Sorcerer's Mill, the plot moves along a little bit less obviously supernaturally in that you get either dreams of escape, but also songs and specifically hymns in Krabat and the Sorcerer's Mill. So what happens is Krabat and his, his friend and really his protector among the group of workers, Tonda, are sitting there keeping this kind of evil, you know, inverse of Easter vigil that they have to keep in order to remain employed at the mill, as it were. And they hear the songs of, of maidens walking across the fields, singing in anticipation of Easter. And this involves a very ancient custom in certain parts of Europe of around Easter time going a group of, of maidens going to a well to retrieve pure water on Easter morning and that there are hymns that accompany this. And they're, they're, they're kind of traditional liturgical hymns of resurrection, of the resurrection of Christ. It is this voice of women singing of, of Christ and of his resurrection that gives Krabat, not some definite doctrinal change of mind or something right away, but just a sense of a life that is very different than the one that he's leading. And this is where I think that things like literature, but also any of the arts, whether they are hymnody or visual arts or music, they are meant to access parts of people that are not explicitly logical or clear or obvious. And so even long before Krabat is sort of rationally convinced that he needs to leave or that something needs to change, or before he even understands what exactly the mill is doing and what happens to the workers who disappear every New Year's Eve, before he has grasped any of those things consciously, some part of holy desire has been kindled in him through the songs that just come from other spirits, from a different kind of life. And I think that is the power that literature, whether for children or adults, has in each of the books that, you know, and you can find them in the show notes. I'll have plenty of information, both about the books and the authors. That's what something like this does. And I think that it's some, I mean, I think it's why at Christmas, we don't really dare to tell a different story, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know of a, I mean, yeah, sure. Pastors get bored with lots of things. I don't know of a pastor that gets bored with reciting the birth of Christ. I mean, if you do, you really should get into a different line of work because 
finally, it, it is, it is a story, which is not merely a story, but it enters into the stories of each of our lives and changes them utterly as soon as we begin to take it seriously. And it's about a child who is already, as he's there in a manger, himself ruler of the universe and Lord over all, and yet content, utterly content to be a humble child. Yeah, the people that in darkness sat a glorious light have seen. With Christmas coming this way, um, I guess that's a, that's a good way to end uh, this episode, right? Where we What do we got coming up next week? What we're going to be looking at is consecutively to round out this year, what we'll call the year that was. And we'll look back over some things that have been forgotten. We'll be able to look maybe a little bit more at the significance of some things that maybe we do remember as well as what we've forgotten and just take stock of what has occurred and and hopefully focus some of our attention on what's going on so that in the week after that, so that the show that would come out the very first in 2022 in that new year would be the year that will be not meaning that we have to prophesy concerning, you know, what will happen to the weather on July 7th, 2022, but give us sort of a sense of where things might go based on what has been a little exercise in stock taking and therefore in uh, understanding with some wisdom where we will be going that I hope everybody will both, you know, enjoy and also profit from. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Tidings of comfort and joy. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You were to find us or you wouldn't be here.